jewishaudio on kaban.org. This class is presented by Rabbi Mendel Kaplan, spiritual leader of Chabad Flamingo in Thornhill, Ontario. We're on chapter 4, Mishnah 16. That's page 284. Rabbi Yaakov Omer. Rabbi Yaakov or Rabbi Jacob says, Ha'olam hazeh. This world that we all live in, Doma l'ferozdor. Could be compared to an antechamber. Bifnei ha'olam haba. That precedes the world to come. One of the best ways to communicate any lesson is by means of a metaphor. Because ideas are sometimes abstract. And concepts are left in the realm of the ethereal very often. Only very, very wise people, people who have truly developed their minds, have an easy time grasping abstract concepts. Thank you. However, when we talk about a metaphor... The metaphor ideally would be something that people come in contact with all the time. So you could talk, for example, about the ability to clump together different substances. And you could use some things like heat or things like water and you clump together and people look at you like you're strange. Or you tell them, I want to tell you about matzo balls. Matzo balls, everybody understands right away that there's heat and there's substance and by virtue of numerous different ingredients they can become stuck together and instead of becoming a bunch of different particles it actually becomes one entity you have yourself a matzo ball so if you wanted to speak to people and explain to them that they really could come together and they could unite you could either talk to them in the abstract you could talk about different entities coming together and that when we unite we form something grander or greater or if everybody happens to be in the matzo ball mode you could talk about matzo balls and then you could say you know what you know that matzo ball story that's us we could really gel and come together. If we're warm enough and we're tepid enough and excited about what we do and there's enough enthusiasm about our Torah and mitzvahs, we could become matzo balls. We could have all those different particles joined together and then you have one entity. Which becomes more easily understood by a person who is not in your world right now. Who's not thinking in your terms. Obviously the latter. The question is, is the communicator in their world or is the communicator ready to step outside of his or her world and place himself in the world of the recipient? The effective communicator knows that it's not about me, it's not about the communicator, but rather it's about the listener. Because the purpose of this exercise is communication. So if I communicate and nobody hears, can we call that communication? If I communicate and people hear something other than I said, can we call that communication? That's a breakdown of communication. Communication means when somebody else is able to understand something the way I understand it. Or I am able to communicate, to take something from point A and place it in point B. Namely, from that which is in my mind or in my heart, to place it in your mind and in your heart. That's called effective communication. The Torah is essentially a communication. It's a communication between God and between humankind. God's relationship with the world comes via the Torah. Specifically, which area in the world, or which segment of creation, is able to receive a communication from God? With whom does God have an intimate relationship? With human beings. You see, we have a relationship with everything around us. Relationship means the way we relate to it. You have a relationship with your chair. You may not think of it in those terms. Sounds a little strange. But the relationship of the chair to you is that through the chair you're able to be seated. So now you're comfortable. 
and now we can study for 45 minutes or an hour, and you're not going to get tired. Why? Because you have the chair. So you have a positive relationship with the chair. If somebody shackled you down to the chair, and you wanted to get up and run around, which is what most school children feel like, they also have a relationship with the chair. But it's a negative relationship. The child wants to jump up and down, and the child is told, no, you must sit. Like the chair in show. Like, you know? <laughs> You want to get up and run out, but the high holiday chair is sitting there. <laughs> Strangest thing, people pay for torture. You know? <laughs> they reserve a seat, they have to sit in even though they don't want to. You have a relationship with the chair. You have a relationship with the table. You have a relationship with your food. Did you hear the story of the guy who was talking to his fish? Sat down in the restaurant, he's talking to the fish. So the waiter came over, he says, excuse me, is everything okay? He says, no, I'm actually from Halifax. I was, I was talking to the fish. Are you crazy? Who talks to the fish? He says, I just wanted to know how things are uh, doing back home. So the waiter said, so what did the fish say? He said, well, the fish said he hasn't been there in about 10 years. <laughs> our relationship with food certainly doesn't mean having a conversation. But we have a relationship with the food. There are certain foods that people like. So they have a positive relationship. There's certain food you don't like. Did your mother ever make you eat spinach? Or something else that you didn't like? Do foods still evoke some type of memory or some type of sentiment from us? There's yamta food, there's uh, other kinds of food that are connected with something special in our lives. Different foods affect us in different ways. I'm reminded of a, a lecture somebody was giving about the importance of a good diet. And he says, what is the most dangerous food anybody can ever eat? So people give various guesses. One old man stands up in the back, he says, I know. He says, what do you say? He says, wedding cake. <laughs> so we have a relationship with the food. We have a relationship with our surroundings. I'm sure you have come across this new Chinese, probably a very old Chinese idea, but it's very new today. It's very much in vogue. I think it's called Feng Shui. Feng Shui. That the colors of the walls and the way things are arranged in the house will make a difference to the way you feel. There's logic to it. I read a little bit. It makes kind of sense. But Torah says we have a relationship to the place in which we live. Thanks, Shay. And, and Torah is very old. The Gemara says, Dinanah, a nice home, a nice surrounding, Marchiva Daita Shaladam, broadens a person's mind. So if you live in a nice, comfortable, airy type of environment, then your mind works better. That causes an expansion of the mind. If somebody lives in a dark and a cluttered area instead of being marked instead of broadening one's mental ability instead what it would do it would narrow your mental acuity so Feng Shei or whatever it's called is very old in Torah as well we have a relationship with the room that we live in with the home that we live in with whatever place we occupy but because we have relationships with these things doesn't mean we communicate to them Communication can only take place when there is an equal or somebody with whom to communicate. Some people claim they communicate with dogs. Maybe. Maybe. I have a feeling that the dog has no idea what you're talking about. Even though the person feels that they're communicating. Somebody once told me he loves to garden. I said, why? He said, because my plants don't talk back to me. <laughs> Your children talk back. It's not called a relationship. That's called you imposing your will, or you imposing your communication, but the good the chances are that the dog doesn't understand what you're talking about. And the flowers may not either understand what you're talking about, although they can be influenced by the surroundings. As the famous example from Princeton University, they did a test where they played music, 
to plants? Did you ever hear about that? They actually played classical. They had a bunch of small plants playing classical music for weeks on end. And the other plant was playing Elvis Presley. And the Elvis Presley plant was all over the place. And the classical music plant was very, very graceful. So it is possible, actually, to influence plants. I always tell that to vegetarians. I want to know why they're more comfortable chomping on the plant than on the animal. What's the difference? Invariably, the only difference is you can't hear the plant screaming when you pick him off the tree or off the ground. That doesn't mean he's not screaming. You just can't see it. Be that as it may. <laughs> I think, I know it's very radical, it sounds very strange, but I think that vegetarians are more concerned about themselves than the animal or the environment around them. As long as I don't hear the pain, as long as I don't see the pain, then there is no pain. <laughs> Which is not necessarily true. In fact, necessarily not true. The point I'm trying to make is that's not communication. Communication only happens when there is a kindred spirit of intelligence. Somebody that I can relate to, somebody I can communicate to, namely another person. People can communicate amongst each other. And that is why people specifically are known in Torah as the Medaber. The name for the human being is Medaber, meaning the talker, the communicator. Human beings are known as communicators. That's very strange. We all know dolphins communicate. Chimpanzees communicate. Why are people the only communicators? Dogs communicate to each other. Because there's no intelligent communication. The communication is more instinctive. The communication uh, that is instinctual is really based on feeling. An animal gets a basic idea that there's a feeling somebody wants something or doesn't want something or stay out of my way and so on and so forth. But we're not able to communicate ideas and concepts. Ideas and concepts, which is in the realm of the intelligence that can be communicated, is specifically in the domain of the human being. It's very fascinating. The Torah does not call the human being the intelligent one. That's the Latin classification. The Latin classification for human being is a homo sapien. Sapiens, of course, means wisdom. So it's an animal that has wisdom. The Torah says, no, it's not an animal that has wisdom. It's an animal that can communicate, a creature that can communicate. And he is thusly no longer an animal. So human beings are all about deeper communication. Now here's something very interesting. God is not a person, and yet God chooses to communicate to us. Which is a fascinating idea. That's really the great gift of humanity. That God chose to communicate to us, although we're not equals. In principle, one would have to be an equal. So if you said God communicated with the angels, it would make more sense. And God does communicate with the angels. However, God's special communication, which is Torah, meaning instruction, was given to people. So God communicated to human beings, and our job is to communicate back to God. Although it's very, very rare to find somebody who has a two-way conversation where you ask a question and get a direct answer. But nonetheless, that's what's supposed to be happening. We're supposed to be involved in a relationship with God. We're supposed to feel God. We're supposed to be, quote-unquote, God conscious. I got a call from the Toronto Star a few days ago. Can they interview me about the Kabbalah? I said, why do you want to interview me about the Kabbalah? So because Madonna's coming to town. <laughs> And they called Bernie Farber, and Bernie Farber said, oh, you'll just call Rabbi Kaplan, he'll tell you about the Kabbalah. <laughs> so I said, okay, fine, what would you like to know about the Kabbalah? So one of the interesting things she said to me, is it true that through the study of the Kabbalah, one can become God-conscious? Can you have a God-consciousness? I said, one can have a God-consciousness by studying Torah, and by doing mitzvot. And the Torah and mitzvot are not separate or different from the Kabbalah. The Kabbalah is a part of the Torah. And studying Torah is a mitzvah. 
And when one does that, one becomes God conscious. You know, it's as if somebody came up with this amazing idea. God conscious. You can actually feel God. You, know, you can have a relationship with God. Yeah, of course. That's what Judaism has been saying for 4,000 years, that you can have a relationship with God. When somebody comes along and packages it in some kind of mystical, magical type of aura, it sounds incredible. Everybody feels like they're a prophet and everybody's flocking. Maybe they've got something there. We have to learn how to package it right. Same Torah, same mitzvahs. But for us, we should know that there's no new fad and no, nothing, nothing new has been discovered. I mean, this, the Torah has always been God's communication to humankind. In various ways and on various levels. And some of it is more mystical or some of it is more literal. But either way, all of it makes us more God conscious, makes us better people. So this is Torah. Torah is God's communication to humankind. A wonderful concept. So Rabbi Yaakov says that when he wants to teach us Torah now, he wants to teach us a lesson, Rabbi Yaakov's job is to be a communicator. Rabbi Yaakov here is serving as a teacher. It's very interesting, Rabbi Yaakov is hardly mentioned in the Mishnah. There's a uh, saying about the, the Mishnah's Rabbi Yaakov, that the teachings of Rabbi Yaakov were kav v'naki, which means very, very short and very clean. That the few teachings that he actually authored, that are attributed to him, are very, very succinct. And their succinctness gives it a special value amongst all other teachings of the Mishnah. They say, Yaakov's teaching, since he was so sparing with words, since it was so rare that he actually would say something original, that he had thought about it so many times, and ruminated on the concept for so long, that it was exact and perfect. So Yaakov was the consummate communicator. He was an expert communicator. He wouldn't communicate unless he was absolutely sure that he was getting 100% of a message across in 100% pristine, clear way, which could not be confused with anything else. And here, Rabbi Yaakov, this is one of those rare Mishnayos, one of those rare examples, where Rabbi Yaakov offers a teaching, and the teaching revolves around life on this earth. So he uses a metaphor. Because a metaphor is something that we can relate to. He talks to us in our world. He says, Ha'olam hazeh, the world that we live in, life as we know it, how could it best be described? And his answer is that when you enter into any large area, whether it's especially a prominent area, if you're coming into a prominent office or if you're coming into a a hall or into a synagogue or into a community center, whenever you come into somewhere and you're going to be doing something important, invariably there's always an antechamber. You go through one room and then through another. In fact, there's an interesting tradition that a synagogue is not supposed to have a door from the sanctuary directly to the outdoors. But rather, one should come into a hallway first. And only after the hallway should one come into the synagogue sanctuary. Which is the case in almost all synagogue sanctuaries. Although it's not actually a halacha, it is quoted by many halachas, this idea. And that's based on the Beit HaMikdash. In the Beit HaMikdash, there was an outer wall. And then that outer wall let you into what we call the Temple Mount. And once you came into the Temple Mount, even when you went into the Beit HaMikdash, you didn't go immediately into the sanctuary area. There were numerous rooms and numerous steps and numerous grades until one would get into what we consider to be actual sanctuary area. Why? Why would the Beit HaMikdash be built that way? Why when you walk into any office or a community center or a home or a house of worship, why is it built with an antechamber first? So you have a chance to get ready, a chance to prepare. It would be rather strange to kind of fall into the sanctuary. Here you're in the outside hustle and bustle and then you just fall into a place of serenity or a place of holiness. It's strange. We need to acclimatize ourselves. Human beings need to get themselves ready or used to something. 
So acclimatization is a very, very important part of anything new. You know where the word acclimatization comes from? That's another metaphor. If you ever get it into your mind to climb Mount Everest, I know some people go through a midlife crisis at some time or another, and you happen to have a few hundred thousand dollars and don't know what to do with it, you will discover that in order to get to the peak of Mount Everest, you're going to need a number of months. Why? Because the air is very thin on Mount Everest. It's very, very high up. And if you would be plunked onto Mount Everest, you would probably expire in a very short amount of time. Unless you had an oxygen tank with you. Because if a human being is used to a certain amount of air, or there's certainly oxygen in the atmosphere is a certain percentage, and then one doesn't have that percentage of oxygen, the lungs are not able to amply provide for the rest of the body. The blood needs to have a certain percentage of oxygen. Now, Tibetans, very interestingly, and you have no problem. Tibetans can go straight up there. Because they live in a more rarefied atmosphere to begin with. Now, because the atmosphere is thinner to begin with, they're living up in the Himalayas to begin with, they are used to surviving on a smaller percentage of oxygen. Which means that it is human, it is humanly possible to survive on less oxygen, we're just not used to it. If a Tibetan is to move to Canada and live for the next 50 years, when he goes back home, no matter what his skin color or face looks like, he will have to acclimatize himself as well. Because you have to get used to. Just like anything you do, you get used to it. The first time you do something, it's very uncomfortable. The second time you do it, you're a little bit more, kind of less uncomfortable, and you become used to something. Acclimatize comes to the word climate. Climate means the atmosphere, a comfortable atmosphere. Climate-controlled environment. That means you're going to control your climate. We are Baruch Hashem today live in a day and age and we don't have to sweat our guts out even in the summer because we have climate controlled environments. We have an air conditioner. We're so spoiled today we can't even imagine living without an air conditioner. And somebody told me recently he went on vacation but he found out that his friends didn't have an air conditioner in the cottage. He took an air conditioner in the trunk. <laughs> and, and, and it didn't sound strange to me. It made perfect sense. How was he going to sleep? How did people sleep for 3,000 years? We just got used to it. When you get used to something, you expect it. <clears throat> so acclimatization means the process in which you live for several weeks somewhere on the Himalayas where the atmosphere is thinner. And once you get used to that, then you're ready to move on to the next level. I think there are four or five acclimatization points where experienced climbers know they have to break, make camp, and they have to relax and just kind of get used to the atmosphere. Just live there. Just breathe, live and breathe and, 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 and exist in that kind of atmosphere to get used to it before you go on to the next level. This is a metaphor which is applicable in 10,000 ways. The first day the kids come to nursery school, everybody's crying. Only with the first grade, the pre-nursery. You're not going to hear it now because they don't have any pre-nursery. But God willing, come in September, I guarantee you it's going to be unbelievable. You walk in, mama's your heart breaks. There's a whole classroom full of wailing kids. Come four or five days later, it's down 50%. You'll come three weeks later and you'll tell the kids, come, come home. The kids don't want to go home. Why? Because they got used to it. They love it. They're having a great time. The nursery is warm and nurturing. The teachers are friendly. The kids are having a blast. They don't want to leave. What happened? They got used to it. Mothers too. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> you mean they don't want to pick the kids up after? <laughs> that is true. There are quite a few mothers I watched leaving here with tears on their face the first day. Yeah? Uh-huh. <laughs> He's speaking from experience because the child is in a nursery. <laughs> so this idea of acclimatization is what we're talking about here. And Rabbi Yaakov says, 
What is the best acclimatization? What is the best preparation that one could do for the next world? You see, this is how it is. The neshama is born, and the neshama is created in the world of souls, in the treasure trove of souls. And the treasure trove of souls eventually moves from the level of souls, and moves to what we call Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden. And optimally, it seems that Gan Eden is the place for neshamas who have been here already. You don't, you don't start off in Gan Eden, you go to Gan Eden. Which is a spiritual habitat for souls. That spiritual habitat for souls has to be earned. How does one earn it? Strangely enough, you have to use the physical to acclimatize yourself for the spiritual. So the soul starts off spiritual and yet it is not equipped or prepared or able to enter into Gan Eden. In order for the soul to enter into Gan Eden, it first has to come here before it goes there. I'm using here and there as if they're physical places. Understand that's a metaphor. And this is where the metaphor of Mount Everest, of course, is not applicable. It would be the equivalent of going down to 5,000 feet beneath sea level in order to reach Mount Everest. That's ridiculous. The lower you go down, the, the thicker the atmosphere is, the heavier the atmosphere is. You go down a lower level, sea level, there's incredibly high levels of oxygen. The answer is, it doesn't exactly match up with the metaphor. And a world, the world that we live in, is not exactly the kind of world it seems to be. If somebody would ask for a description of our world, we would say it's coarse, it's crass, it's material, it's everything that souls aren't. But interestingly enough, although this world is everything that souls aren't, only by being in this world can souls reach the place they have to go. There's no other way for a soul to be cut and polished other than descending into this very difficult process which we can compare to the diamond in the rough being going through the whole cleansing process where all the impurities are drained and the diamond is cut and polished and then the diamond once again is beautiful much more beautiful than it started originally you know how they find gold all this Africans must know right? gold ore you know, gold doesn't come they don't find little gold nuggets That's, uh, that doesn't happen in the real world in the real world you find gold ore which is a vein in a mountain that contains gold within but it looks in my understanding is like it's black looks like black black stone or black metal and it has to go through a process in which with through tremendous heat and tremendous force the gold is separated from the ore and the black ore or the garbage is discarded and the gold is removed and that's how you have gold so the way you have gold the way you have gold from the ore is in a way by destroying the ore once the ore becomes destroyed, only then can we take the gold out. So neshamas, when they're first created, are potentially great. But they don't have that greatness originally. It's like gold ore. It has to come into what we call the melting pot. And in the melting pot, in this challenging, difficult world, where there's unhappiness, and there's illness, and there's suffering, and there's anguish, and there's pain, in that world, where all these negative things, and being able to respond to that, and being able to make the most of it, we are able to extract the gold and then the neshama, the stocks go up. The neshama is able to become much more valuable and become perfected. So the neshama reaches Gan Eden through its sojourn on earth. And the neshama is able to achieve great things. The neshama is a non-achiever prior to its descent on earth. The neshama doesn't do anything. In order for the neshama to do something, you have to work at it. Nursery kids are the cutest thing. Little child children, the cutest, sweetest things. But when you're going to have a child in his 40s that behaves like a nursery child, you're going to be climbing the walls. Why? Why? Because it's fine for a baby to do nothing. It's fine for a small children to do nothing but make trouble. That's fine. 
But when you get older, you have to start performing. And the neshama, the baby neshama, has to grow up. And it grows up. It's not easy to grow up. It's no fun growing up. There's all kinds of difficulties, all kinds of challenges. But through that process of growing up, we are able to become achievers and performers. We're able to become something. Something great. And that's what the challenge of life is all about. So Rabbi Yaakov says, Ha'olam hazeh. Our world, it is like an antechamber. This is the time you have to prepare. So you know you're going for an interview for a job and you have your moment in the antechamber and you quickly straighten your tie or your blouse or maybe you comb your hair or you check your lipstick, whatever ladies do, right? Because you wanted to make the best impression and you don't have a second time to make that first impression. <coughs> so you have that moment, that extra moment in the antechamber or the extra moment when you have a chance to pull yourself together. Mentally, physically, etc. That's what this world is all about. Which means, it's not that we live there also. It's not that we say, well, somebody died, well, well, life goes on. Life begins, life doesn't go on. It's not as if life is really all about the time we spend here. And there's also meaning in the next world. It's really, primarily, and most importantly about the other world, the world that follows. This world is only seen as a preparation. We're moving towards that world. I think, maybe I told the story a few weeks ago, but it's always worth telling over, the story of the Magid with the furniture. Did I mention it last week? Somebody once came to the Magid of Mizuch, the great Magid who was the successor of the Baal Shem Tov, leader of the Hasidic movement, it was the most dynamic movement in Europe, sweeping throughout Poland and Russia and Ukraine, and he visits the Magid and he just can't get over the surroundings, the environment. He lives in a very, very simple home, and there's no furniture. The table is a rough board that sits on a log and he's sitting on a bench. He says, Rabbi, what's going on here? Where's your furniture? And the Magad says, my furniture? Where's your furniture? The looks at him strange. He says, my furniture is back home. The Rabbi says, my furniture is at home too. I'm also traveling. He saw the world. He saw life as a travel. Now imagine when you're traveling and things aren't perfect. No, okay, I'm traveling. Who cares? That's not, I'm not settled. Things aren't in perfect order. You don't, you don't get as uptight. You take what it is, you make the best of it, you're on vacation, you're traveling, and you move on. That's how we're supposed to look at life. We get so frustrated and so upset about such silly things. Things which really don't mean anything. Somebody once told me, uh, uh, something I thought was very wise. He said, but whenever you're going to get angry, stop and think. How much, will, how much of a difference will this make to you in ten years? On a scale from one to ten, how much of a difference will it make? Most of the time it doesn't even get onto the scale. How many things in life are really worth getting upset about? How many things in life are really worth becoming anxious about? So few. Yet people are so stressed out. Because we're too caught up in the here and now. Interestingly, the, the word for hell in Hebrew is Gehenna. Where does the name Gehenna come from? Gehenna comes from the name of a valley. It was like the death valley outside of Jerusalem. There was a valley of death. And it was called Gehinon. Gay is a valley in Hebrew, in scriptural Hebrew. So the Medrash says that the origin of the word Hinaim, in, in a, at least in a mystical sense or in a, a homiletic sense, is Hinei Hayom. The focus on today. All about now. That's a hellish experience. When a person can't see past this moment, a person is stuck only in the moment. That can be incredible. How daunting. No hope. No optimism, no future, no tomorrow. Only the immediate. Getting caught up in the immediate is a fourth. That's a, a little taste of Gehenna. That's what Gehenna is. And sometimes we make our own lives into hell. 
Why? Because we're so caught up on here, now, the physical, that which I can touch, that which is tangible. Uh, we don't think about the bigger picture. So that narrow-mindedness, that myopicity, and the focus on the here and now only, not being able to see the bigger picture, this is, in a certain sense, the origin of the word we call Gehenna. Being stuck, in, uh, or having narrow constraints, narrow constraints, being stuck within constraints, where this is the way I do it, and that's the way I've done it yesterday, the day before, and ten years ago, and I can't think of doing it any other way. This is the metaphor of Egypt. Mitzrayim, Egypt, is, means Mitzrayim. If you vowelize the word Mitzrayim differently, it comes out to me, read Mitzrayim, which means limitations. And it's very interesting, in this week's Torah portion, it's, the portion begins with the words, Ela Masay B'nai Yisrael. These are the journeys, plural, of the Jewish people, as they left Mitzrayim. So the famous question is asked, there were 42 journeys in total, that the Jews made during the course of those 40 years. But the 42 journeys, were not journeys leaving Mitzrayim. Which journey left Mitzrayim? The first journey. Only the first journey. So why do we say these are the journeys, plural? They're not journeys. There's one journey leaving Mitzrayim and the other journeys were heading towards Eretz Yisrael. So the Rebbe explains that Mitzrayim is a relative concept. That which was constrained yesterday and today I left that so I went out of Mitzrayim. But tomorrow I have to go a step beyond. I have to transcend that. And we always have to keep going out of Mitzrayim because Mitzrayim somehow follows us. And you can never be stuck. No paradigm is good. Never be closed-minded and say, well, this is the way it has to be. Ah, I used to be foolish. Now I'm wise. And this is the way it's going to be. Who says? You always have to be open-minded. You always have to see a bigger picture. You always have to keep trying to transcend. And there's endless levels and gradations that a person can constantly rise in and constantly become a more patient person, a wiser person, a kinder person, a more compassionate person because you transcend the limitations of yesterday. Growth. Constant growth. But somebody who's only caught up with the here and now can never do that. Because they're only focused on the immediate. And it's true, as you mentioned, most people live that way. So a lot of people aren't too happy. I can tell you that in Yiddishkeit, for sure, the comfort zone is not a healthy place to live. One is not supposed to find a comfortable place in Judaism and say, I'm comfortable, this is good. That's not called serving Hashem. Serving Hashem means to constantly strive, to constantly go beyond. I mean, ask any businessman what happens if the company is in exactly the same place year after year. Not only is it not growing, it's diminishing. It's impossible. The economy changes, the environment changes, the, the, the needs change. A company has to constantly be changing. You can't have the, the, the same computer equipment you had 20 years ago. 20 years ago it worked, today it doesn't. You have to constantly upgrade. There is value to not getting confused. There is value to learning how to focus. Like there's like attention deficit disorder was when you focus on everything and nothing. There is value to being able to focus. When you do something, you have to be able to zero in and focus on something. But that doesn't mean to exclude everything else. It means not to focus on everything else. You can't be focused in ten places at the same time. But you can be aware of those other places. The difference would be, attention deficit disorder means somebody's looking at the room and he's focusing on everything at the same time. Ask him what he sees, he has no idea because he's busy focusing on everybody and everything. And he can't succeed because of that. Because the moment he starts succeeding in one area, all of a sudden he shifts his focus somewhere else. That's a problem. On the other hand, a person that focuses only on one thing and all they see is one thing. You walk into a room, what do you see? I saw a picture. What else? I don't know. I can only see a picture in the room. That person has a severe problem. He, he doesn't have the proper focus. What is the proper focus? To be aware of the surroundings and then to focus on one detail at a time. So, a person who is only aware of the present and has no awareness of 
past and the future is a person who is making his life into a hell. There was something missing. Spiritually, it's equally unhealthy to be focused only on the here and now and not to be aware of other things. That's, that's problematic. Every one of us has that problem, by the way. <laughs> we're, we're born with it. But we have to work on overcoming it. It is a challenge. Every, every child is, I mean, I'm not going to say every child is autistic, because that's a ridiculous statement. But every child is totally self-centered. Only a healthy child is able to outgrow that. Some children outgrow it at two. Depends how many older siblings they have. Some children outgrow it at five. Some children outgrow it at six. One of the reasons we send children to nursery school is not to give them a diploma in rocket science. Although that's what some parents think. They want to know, how many letters has my child mastered? And they'll come screaming at my wife, how come my child doesn't know the letter K yet? And they're already in school for two months. It's me sugar the letter K. Who cares? Your child's in pre-nursery. They didn't even know the letter A. That's not what they come to pre-nursery for. What do they come to pre-nursery for? To learn how to get along with other people. Learning how to share, learning how to relate. And that even if a child has many siblings, the children are at a different age. Only a child that has actual twins, the twins or triplets, needs the school less. Because, you know, the child's used to being the baby. They're the baby, they get pampered. Or at least the older siblings are pampering them. A child to be with 20 children, the same age, who have the same needs, is a very frightening experience for the child. It's, very, very, it's a painful experience. That's why they're crying. They're freaked out. It's not only that, they're, that they're, they miss their mother. The, the environment is strange. The faces are strange. Everything is strange. Child's going crazy. And there's all these little clones going all over the place. All these little kids have the same exact needs. So the child is used to being me, it, the end all. And all of a sudden the child got lost. He said, hey, what happened over here? What's going on? So everybody is like, like that autism. But autism is not a problem. It's not called autism when it's a normal child who as a baby cries and wakes everybody up because he's hungry. That's perfectly normal. The baby that decides to, you know, to be a masochist or, 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 I'll be hungry, I'll be hungry, it's okay, it's okay, let my parents sleep. That baby's cuckoo. I mean, they're, they're, if you had a baby like that, it would be not normal. It's normal for the baby to cry. I, it's three o'clock in the morning and you want to sleep. Tough luck, the baby's hungry now. That's perfectly normal. That's, that's what baby's supposed to do. But you're supposed to do the right thing at the right time. So what we call abnormal is precisely that. Doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. Not doing what everybody else is doing. Now, when an 18-year-old child is screaming and yelling in the middle of the night because they're hungry, he comes and wakes you up, I want dinner right now, we got a problem on our hands. When the 18-month-old baby does that, it's perfectly normal. You know what I'm saying? Depression is an illness. Depression is a serious problem. However, every one of us gets depressed. Does it mean we should all keep a little Prozac in our pockets in case you get depressed? No, it's perfectly normal to get into a bad mood. That doesn't mean that there's a chemical imbalance. It means currently the chemical in your mind is shifting one way or the other, whether it's because hormones, whether just because you're in a bad mood because just the way it is, or because you got stressed out of something caused it. But the shift, the slight shift of dark and light energy in the brain, the shift one way or the other is perfectly normal. Nobody's brain is perfectly balanced at all times. Some days we're happier, some days we're less happy. Sometimes we have to work harder at being happy, some days it comes more naturally. When somebody finds themselves always depressed, I think three days is the clinical minimum. I would say probably for three days a week. And the depression does not enable them to act. They can't get out of bed. They can't eat. They can't do normal things. Then we have an illness on our hands. Then we have a problem. So every condition, every phenomena that, that exists that's called, that is, is designated or delineated as sickness also exists in a healthy way. The healthy way is that you can deal with it. An unhealthy way is when it gets out of control. And that's where we're talking about going back on the focus, lack of focus. All of these extremes, you could take anything and, and say, well, this is bad. Focus is bad. Too much focus is bad. 
Too little focus is bad. That's to be a balance. Gehenom, or focus on the present only, means that we have an unhealthy situation. And Rabbi Yaakov says that the world is only a parozdor. The world is only a corridor. But he says, that doesn't mean you shouldn't do anything in the corridor. What's the other side? The other side of it is, Haskin Atzmach, prepare yourself in the corridor. Make good use of the corridor. The corridor is not a meaningless, not a meaningless segment of time. The corridor is not an empty, an empty moment. It's an appropriate moment. It's a time that has to be correctly used. We're not saying, ah, it's a corridor, forget it, do nothing. I mean, this doesn't count. It does, it counts very much. In fact, this could be the moment you need. That moment to pull yourself together is the difference between somebody surprising you or you having composure. Now, when we react to a situation because we're shocked or surprised, when we react to a situation when we're composed, there's a world of difference. And what's the difference between being composed or shocked? A moment. A few, a minute sometimes. It's not a lot. In the the bigger picture, it could be a very, very small amount of quantity when we talk about the time, but the quality of that time is very, very important. So the antechamber is an insignificant amount of time and an insignificant stage of rite of passage, and yet most significant. Because the two minutes in the antechamber, or the few minutes you have to prepare yourself, are more important sometimes than all the other two minutes that follow. And you can achieve more in those two minutes by pulling yourself together. That gives you a, a, a light years of advantage when you're going to the next stage. Which is exactly what the next Mishnah says. This is the first Mishnah finishes. Prepare yourself in the antechamber. In order that you go into the palace. However, realize that the time you have to compose yourself is incredibly valuable. He used to say. It's more valuable to have one moment. Just a moment of tshuva. Tshuva literally is translated as repentance, more aptly as return. Return to basics. Return to who we were destined to be. Namely, an interlocutor with God. Part of that godly communication. A partner with God. And invariably we stray from that partnership. We ignore that partnership at one time or another. The Yitzhahari gets the better of us. We get clouded or confused and we lose focus. So that's why we constantly need to get back. Get back, get back on track. Get back to the focus. That's the idea of tshuva. We're always having to do tshuva. You don't only do tshuva after you pull the trigger and hurt somebody. You do something big. Tshuva is a constant. So you constantly remind yourself. Like any good company has constant meetings. And what do they do? With the, what is the point of the meetings? Because invariably you pull away from focus. Get back to the focus. Always get back to basics. It's a constant ebb and flow. As we go through life, most of us, except great tzaddikim, get diverted. We get pulled off center. We lose sight of what's most important very, very often. And therefore you have to constantly pull yourself back to the center. Constantly be involved in tshuva. Constantly experience the performance of masim tovim, of good deeds. Do good things. Revel in the good things. Be excited about it. Don't just do mitzvahs in a lackluster way. Masim tovim. It's a good deed. It's a deed that's full of life, that's full of passion. It's something that you're doing and it's evident that it's a good thing. So one moment of that in this world is more valuable and is more beautiful than all of the wondrous gifts that the next life, the afterlife has to offer us. One moment of tshuva masim tovim is more powerful. Going back to our metaphor, when you're talking about a very, very important situation, and somebody gets that two minutes to compose themselves, 
minutes. You know, you have, you have two minutes now. Just compose yourself quickly. And you compose yourself. You can go out there. You can have a battle that lasts an hour long. And you're no problem. That whole battle, you, you can hold yourself. Why? Because you had the two minutes to compose yourself. But when you had the element of surprise, everything is lost. Right? What, what, is, what is the most important thing that any military strategist can look for? The most important key in any battle? The element of surprise. Element of surprise. So it, it's an amazing thing. Let's say you talk about the Normandy, D-Day. When, when the United States, the Allies invaded... German occupied the Europe. It's like an unbelievably daunting thing, you know, to literally come from the ocean into a continent, occupy a continent. So, if you know a little bit of history, the Allies spent almost as much money creating diversions as they did on the actual on the actual operations of D-Day. They shipped huge, huge, huge amounts of weapons up to Norway, face, facing Norway, and they had maneuvers up in Norway. It was a, it was probably as important as the soldiers who were going to go across the English Canal. In Normandy, was as important to that battle was the soldiers who were doing mock exercises off the, shore, off the shores of Norway. Why? Because that way they created some element of surprise. And only because of the element of surprise were they able to pierce the Nazi armor. along the, And once they got inside, so then, then it was a question of time. Then the Russians came from the other side, and Baruch Hashem, that evil was destroyed. The point though is, sometimes something can be very, very small, yet incredibly valuable. Because that sets the tone for everything that follows. From D-Day till the end of World War II, took a couple of years, months, more, a couple of years of fighting. Millions of lives were lost from D-Day until, until the end of the war. Yet that, what happened before, that day, the circumstances of that day made all the difference. So that you understand there's a metaphor then, this world we say is an antechamber, but such an important antechamber. It's a passing stage, it's just a couple of days, it's a couple of weeks, but it's such an important passing stage. Because what you accomplish here in those few minutes is more valuable than everything in the world to come. Lest you think that the world to come has no value, or that it's not so special. So he finishes off Rabbi Yaakov with the contrast, and he says, One moment of nachas, one moment of joy, one moment of pleasure in the other world is more valuable, is more beautiful, is more, more wonderful an experience than everything on earth. So imagine for yourself a whole lifetime of joy, a lifetime of fun, a lifetime of pleasure, a lifetime of passion. Everything you could possibly want. 80 years, 90 years of just wonderful. Everything is wonderful. And one moment of life in the other world is more valuable than all of that. And yet, the way we get that is from one moment of life here. Almost like an oxymoron. The whole thing is like one big contradiction. Almost. It isn't. It makes perfect sense. But if you think about it, this world is so insignificant, yet so incredibly important. It's, it passes us by, yet it's so valuable and makes all the difference in the future and the world to come.